With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guests are author of Thank You for Your Servitude and writer for many of the country's top publications, Mark Leibovich, and special prosecutor doing Watergate and the 9-11 Commission member, Richard Benvenisti. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, Real Paper and Chili Sleep, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. James, we talked uh, the last couple of weeks about two particular primaries uh, that were held uh, Tuesday of this week. One, the Florida gubernatorial race, kind of hoping maybe Nikki Freed would uh, be a stronger candidate against DeSantis. She got swamped by Charlie Chris. But the big one was New York 19, a, a, a special election in the Catskills and the Upper Hudson. Uh, it was a very competitive seat, usually in a very competitive seat, special election. Uh, midterm, the party out of power wins. Didn't happen last night. Democrat won a convincing victory. Tell us what it means. Well, it, it, it's significant. And when you combine it with uh, Nebraska won, your, uh, Minnesota won, the Kansas ballot measure, this and the New York 23rd. Remember that whole Southern tier, that, that, that district, Democrat Trump carried it by nine to cook PBI of even better than that. And a Democrat lost by six. Right. All right. Which, which is out exceeding performance. Now there's a cautionary note in all of these. They're not on election day. And mm-hmm. Nebraska one has the University of Nebraska. Minnesota one has a Rochester clinic. The New York 23 has Cornell and I don't know how many other colleges in it. And the New York 19 is flooded with different colleges. And what we may be seeing is Democratic performances being elevated among better educated Democrats in college towns that give us this margin. So it, it is good news but it has to be tempered with a slight dose of reality. Well, the other thing that struck me was Ryan, the Democratic candidate, county executive who won, uh, campaigned almost exclusively on a woman's right to choose, the abortion issue, whereas the Republican candidate tried to make it about inflation and crime. And I think it showed how how the abortion issue resonates I would say in most places in America, I think if you're a Democrat, you want to talk about abortion, you want to make it important, but you don't want to make it the issue. Uh, it worked in, in New York 19, Tuesday, but I think in a lot of places, again, I think it's a very good issue for Democrats. I don't think it should be a singular issue. 
Well, also remember that they had a near-perfect Republican candidate. We had a very good Democratic candidate. Don't, don't right. get me wrong, but it wasn't. Uh, this guy was very accomplished. He was actually pro-choice. Yep. All right. And this was almost a lab thing. Now, again, I go back to my note of caution here. In these races, they all have. Now, a lot of a lot of districts do. There's a lot of colleges in, in America, but I'm I'm thinking some of this is driven by an overlay of of educated whites in these districts. Now, it's still good. Don't get me wrong. Still, it's not behaving anything like a wave year. Yeah, I'd love to see. Uh, I'm sure there are you know, the times and other places will have data within a couple days. Um, I, I, you know, college kids who just got back to college uh, yeah, if, I, I, if, I, if in a special election. I mean, you may be absolutely right. No, I'm, no, I'm talking but, about faculty and all of the people yeah. around the, the whole infrastructure as much as I'm talking about actually college students. Yeah, but, you know, I, students are the big block in those places. A, it is, but I, I'm, yeah. I'm not even I, – I don't count that in Nebraska one because they weren't there. Right, all right, right. right. And, and, you know, Minnesota too, I think, you know, the Rochester Clinic has got a lot of – obviously a lot of educated people in it. Oh, there are, and those, and I'll tell you something. Those those highly educated medical people who probably forty years ago voted uh, mainly Republican now vote overwhelmingly Democrat. There's no such thing now, but you're right. But all I'm doing, I'm not, I'm not discounting it. I'm not saying it's not significant. It certainly clearly points to no wave. But well, it clearly points to that. But and I agree with you. But you may, I mean, it may point to more than that. Not necessarily a Democratic victory. Not necessarily, but I think it's more on the table now than it might have been two I, months I ago. And in a special election, I love people who say they don't count for anything. Well, you look at history, they do count for something. Yeah. They are harbingers of what's going to happen usually, and, and they got a pretty good track record. And in a in a off in a midterm election, the party out of power ought to win a competitive uh, district that is basically a toss up, and they they lost by almost four points. Yes, and they're, and they're also winning by less than they should win, in like uh, New York twenty three, Nebraska one, Minnesota one. It's not just the races we win in, but the races we losing are actually quite encouraging. Also, I suppose the only disappointment among Democrats in New York yesterday was uh, Carl Palatino, the ultimately uh, uh, absolutely crazy right wing Republican, uh, barely lost his uh, his his primary. He's the guy no, who. Elise Stefanik couldn't get him over the finish line. Elise Stefanik yeah. tried. She she endorsed the guy who's made friendly comments about Nazis and said he wanted to execute Merrick Garland. But uh, I'm sorry, Elise, your candidate lost. But yeah. um, it, it'll be a. I, I tell you something, James. Democrats were terribly upset when the court threw out the New York redistricting. Now the New York redistricting was blatantly unfair, just as the Republicans were blatantly unfair in Texas, Florida, Ohio, and elsewhere. But a court threw that out, and Democrats thought, oh, my God, that's going to cost us at least three or four seats. Well, it may cost them now, you know, one or two or three seats. Uh, They're in better shape than than we thought a month ago. Let let me go to a really significant race in New York. I think it was the 10th. Sean Patrick Maloney. Right. All right. The establishment Democrats ahead of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. The progressive, the, the working families, AOC, progressive people ran a tailor-made, funded, message-oriented candidate in that primary. 
the results of that primary was the, quote, establishment, unquote, as Sean says, I'm, I'm a married gay guy with a biracial kid, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and he wins the thing two to one. How many times do these people have to be told to tend to your own garden? Don't come out here. They show you the door time and time and time again, and we will hear the same shit tomorrow that we heard yesterday that there's giant sleeper cells all around the country that are just waiting to be activated by this uber-progressive message. And they they don't care. They're impervious to facts. They're impervious to anything. They just keep running their mouths. It's amazing. Well, you know, I totally agree with you on that. I just want to say one word. I mean, you absolutely summarize exactly what happened there. The Democratic candidate that the that the woke people uh, rally behind, uh, uh, State uh, Senator Biagi, is the granddaughter of of uh, Mario Biagi, who was an ethically challenged congressman years ago. She's a very impressive woman. Uh, she she's a certainly a devout liberal. That doesn't detract right. from a thing you said, James. Uh, I, I would know. Have been a, it, it, it buttresses I, I mean, everything I said. Yeah, I mean, this is somebody who would be a good member of Congress. I don't, you can argue about whether Sean, Sean Maloney is a good member or not, but Biagi would have been. And, uh, uh, but, but the more important point is the one you make, that the, uh, that the woke left got uh, handed another, right. another stinging. Uh, 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 and they did it in, in what makes it even more impressive that how bad they got beat is. You're right. They had a real credible candidate. They did, right. They, they, it, it wasn't... You know, you had somebody like Nina Turner who spent a whole life just aggravating people, right? They had a, 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 a there's somebody of, that could project their message just perfectly. Yeah. And, you know, no. Sean it, loved the guys, you know, got a lot of saying for him. But, I mean, he's ultimate kind of establishment Washington Democrat. Yeah. Man. And this is not what they're looking for. And they, they keep telling you, they keep telling you, why don't you listen one day? They don't want to. No. Okay, um, uh, big, I mean, New York 19 is huge. New York 23 matters. Florida, uh, Charlie Crest, great Wake, Wake Forest quarterback. I hope our instant analysis is wrong and he can give uh, Ron DeSantis a tough I, run. We'll see. I thought, well, you know what, he, he was pretty damn impressive. I admit I, I was yeah. for Nikki, but that, that was pretty pretty much. Now, just one more thing before we leave. In that, that race that Dan Goldman won in the primary very closely, the Working mm-hmm. Families Party is thinking about third partying him. I, how stupid could you get? Yeah, because I mean, they, they had no chance. Yeah. I mean, why don't no, we just trottle it as opposed to, you know, why don't we just give these people one hour on, on television and let them parade around? And oh, it's do just, all that performing. I know Danny Goldman a little bit. He went to my kids' school. He was the he was the counsel to the uh, House Intelligence Committee uh, during the uh, impeachment investigation of of Donald Trump. Um, unlike the the uh, Judiciary Committee, um, he did a heck of a job. He's a very bright young man. He, he's going to make a very good congressman. So if if the loony left doesn't undo him. Well, yeah, I don't think they will in that district. Uh, We'll see. (laughs) 
Richard Benvenisti was a legendary Watergate prosecutor. Uh, and he's been a leading Washington lawyer, served on the 9-11 Commission since then. Uh, Richard, I am reading, almost finished, uh, I'm on vacation supposedly this week, G uh, Garrett Graff's epic Watergate, A New History. And it is clear that you were, you and maybe one or two others, were the prime prosecutors working for Jesse, working for um, uh, Archie Cox and then Leon Jaworski. And, and that it was an incredible moment in history. We may be going through something comparable uh, to that now. As you look at this landscape after the Mar-a-Lago uh, incident, uh, how, how, how do you assess it? What kind of danger do you think Trump is in and what, what kind of considerations Merrick Garland making right now? Comparing uh, the current situation to uh, Watergate is, uh, is pretty easy for me. For all uh, Richard Nixon's venality and criminal conduct, we survived Richard Nixon and would even have survived a second term of Richard Nixon. He was not an existential threat to our country. Donald Trump is an existential threat because unlike Nixon, Trump had no regard for the traditions, for the institutions, for the basic uh, freedoms uh, imbued in the Constitution and has absolutely no interest, as far as I can see, in governing in accord with uh, the requirements of our constitutional democracy. So in answer to your question, I think it is very serious, and I think uh, Trump is in a world of trouble right now. And you watch Donald Trump. You know what he's like. As you say, he has no, no regard for truth, no regard for the rule of law. Uh, you know, he's like a trap rat in some ways, uh, and, but he's always gotten out of it. I mean, it's amazing. He's done so many but, criminal acts in his life, uh, and I assume he thinks he's going to get out of it now. But every indication But there's is, a new sheriff in town. Now. Okay, go through that. And it's unlike Bill Barr, who was attorney general and enabler general, as far as I was concerned, uh, for uh, keeping Trump out of harm's way, meaning out of the Justice Department's proper uh, reach during his term of office. Um, he abused his friendship, in my view, um, with a special po uh, prosecutor, Bob Mueller, and he misstated what the conclusions were in the, in the Mueller report, and Mueller just didn't have the wherewithal in him to fight back and do what was necessary. Now you've got a man who not only distinguished himself in the Justice Department in his prior service, um, but had years and years of service as a judge in a high court and is an individual whose integrity is unquestioned by most lawyers in the United States and most thinking people. And so uh, when you do something like what Trump did uh, with Mar-a-Lago, to go back to your earlier question, and 
refused to return that which he never should have been able to take from the White House had he been law-abiding, um, there are consequences, and he refused to give it back. Uh, I, I just don't get the Republicans in their spectacular hypocrisy uh, jumping up and down for two years over Hillary Clinton uh, and what was uh, inconsequential in terms of uh, technical violations of um, the requirements of confidentiality and, and security as far as uh, her server and the gross malfeasance of Trump and perhaps more in taking documents that have the highest security classification from the security of the White House and placing them in his resort hotel uh, in Florida. Uh, perhaps if he had uh, taken the White House silverware or the uh, big screen TVs he was so fond of we don't know he did with him. <laughs> well, so far, we haven't heard that he did. But maybe that would be easier for a certain apologists to understand that you can't just steal stuff because you were once president. And the materials that were taken as I understand it, reading between the lines to some extent, involved uh, our ability uh, to uh, obtain information through the use of our uh, highest technological capabilities um, that is contained in some of the materials that Trump uh, simply took with him. And he now rants like the uh, spoiled child that he is when he is forced to give it back. Yeah. It sounded like a New York, a typical New York statement uh, where, you know, they, they said, look, give back the materials. And Trump said, no, I'm not going to do it. They're mine. They're mine. Right. Uh, Richard, They're let me. Mine. Yeah. mine, 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 mine. There is a, an analogy of sorts uh, you and your initial considerations, uh, this is before Nixon was out of office, of whether to indict a president. He was a sitting president. There are differences in these cases, to be sure, and yours was only an initial consideration. But there was a great debate within your office uh, about about whether to indict or not indict a, a, a sitting president, and you all, you named him as a unindicted co-conspirator. What do you think is going through Garland's and his deputies' Uh, debates and considerations right now about to indict or not indict? I think he is analyzing the evidence. He has a tremendous foundation to begin work with, uh, created by, um, in large part, uh, the House Select Committee on January 6th. And they have done a phenomenal job in uncovering information and assembling it, and then uh, providing it to the American public in a format that uh, is unique, in my experience, for a congressional committee. Uh, so they've done a superlative job, and now it's up to Garland to take what has been 
provided to him and build upon it using the toolbox that is unique to the Justice Department. The, just, the Justice Department has tools like the search warrant, like the ability to uh, compel testimony through grants of immunity. Uh, they have the tools to litigate bogus claims of executive privilege and to get the remaining evidence. I think there was an extraordinary article uh, provided uh, by uh, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser of the New York Times that talked about the uh, uh, the machinations that were used to try to get the military involved in the January 6th coup. And that's required reading, in my view, for anybody who cares about our democracy. What happened with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs in uh, refusing to go along with what looked like the attempt by Trump and his uh, enablers to misuse the military uh, to seize voting machines and to put down what uh, Trump was ginning up as uh, an insurrection and to use the powers of the presidency um, to uh, invoke martial law or the Insurrection Act uh, to do so. And that is uh, the most chilling thing I have seen in my lifetime uh, of uh, of individuals who have uh, skirted or broken the law. This is stunning in its breadth and uh, in the attempt to overturn the uh, bedrock of our uh, constitutional democracy, which is the free and fair election, uh, and then this is the peaceful succession of the newly elected uh, individuals into office. James. So, so well, thank you so much, Richard. It's just such, such a pleasure to talk to you again. So when we talk about Garland, we all use the same word, methodical, integrity, probity, cautious, rule of law, all right? So he's presented with this application for a search warrant. He mulls over it for a week, probably appropriate. In the back of his mind, I, 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 I guarantee you, I don't know this. I, I, I might have met him at some book signing or cocktail party, but I don't remember. But it seems to be very much of a general consensus on who he is. And he's got to have Robert Mueller in the back of his mind. Once he signed off, on this warrant, uh, you know, and I'll be cliche as here, touch a king, kill a king, in for a penny, in for a pound. He knows that he's committed to go through the end, doesn't he? I mean, he, he wouldn't have not done this unless I, he, he had James, a pretty good idea. You know, I don't, I don't think this, um, uh, this uh, presages a decision on whether he's going to indict. Um, but I do think that he will not be bullied. He will not be put off. I think what he will do is uh, is enforce the law without fear or favor, which is the job of the attorney general. Uh, 
So when the president of the United States says, I'm not giving it back, and when the attorney general is reliably informed that the president has in his possession materials that involve the highest level of classification, code word uh, classification, which means electronic interception of materials, um, which Trump may find titillating and may like to show to his friends and um, is consistent with his unholy approach uh, to the presidency uh, and says, I'm not giving it back. Well, it's Garland's job to tell him, no, you cannot do that. You are not king. You are not the king of the grifters. You don't hold that office. And if you won't give the material back, we will take it back because it's ours and you cannot misuse it for your own advantage or your own entertainment. So, Richard, I have, in terms of law, I would no way stand as a peanut to you an elephant, but there's something I do have some familiar with because I was one. You're calling me an elephant, James. And I'm a peanut, okay. There's something I have experience with, and that is being a bad lawyer, all right? Now, these people are not just fucking bad lawyers. I mean, they are, like, awful. First of all, You're talking they about the, sign Trump, off. the Trump lawyers, The James. Trump lawyers, yes, the Trump lawyers. Okay. I wouldn't sign shit to a court. They sign off that they've complied with everything. How stupid was this lawyer? That, how did how, I, I've had lawyers. You, I've talked to you. You've helped me on some kind of case. I've, I've had some of the best lawyers in the world. They're not going to fucking sign anything that, that you can imagine this. Then the... the they release the archivist letter, which is totally inculpatory to them. I, I don't know who like read this before they did. John Solomon did it. And then they do a pleading before a Trump judge that says, you don't even have a prayer in here. You need to go look at the manual as to how. Did you read that? I mean, that's unbelievable when the to- judge tells you. You, you got to go to the, to, you know, we used to have Judge Rubin in Louisiana. He would always go, he wrote all the forms. You wanted to do something, you go see what Judge Rubin said. They can't follow the fucking form. I mean, even I could do that. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, I don't know if you've stepped up, James, um, but he's still looking uh, for capable lawyers. Um, but- Mr. Trump, unfortunately, has this history, A, of not paying his lawyers, B, of uh, not listening to their advice, and C, even after listening, just doing whatever the hell he feels like doing. And that's why most capable lawyers who have been approached, and I know of some personally, who have turned down uh, the request are are simply not going to represent the man who cannot reasonably be represented. He can't be trusted. He can't uh, follow instructions. And if you have uh, a, a proper legal theory, he can't be trusted to follow it. So what's the point of undertaking a representation uh, 
like that if you are a capable member of the bar. So you're going to wind up with uh, TV lawyers, hacks, and other people who would simply like to get the uh, publicity value of saying they've represented a former president of the United States, one who um, will be enshrined in history not only for being the only president who uh, was twice impeached, but also for the first one who has uh, asserted the Fifth Amendment privilege. So as he goes through the amendments, he knew about the Second Amendment uh, early on uh, when he talked about his Second Amendment people, which should have uh, provided folks like myself, and, and I did, a, a warning of what was to come, enthralled with the notion that he had so mesmerized people through this phony narrative that he had created on his television show of being a successful businessman and a, a wise person so that he could say, I could shoot a, uh, somebody on Fifth Avenue and my followers uh, wouldn't... Uh, uh, I wouldn't lose a one of them. So uh, this is uh, this is new ground for us all. This is the ultimate culmination of the teaching of Roy Cohn um, to yep. uh, slander and smear your adversaries, uh, to create uh, all kinds of. Uh, disinformation and diversions and never answer a question directly. Um, this is what uh, it has come to in this country. And those who want a country that is based on law and our constitutional values had better come to their senses. So before I turn it over to Al, it's a, a lot of talk, and I, I was listening to this guy, Andrew Weissman, who we've had on the show, who strikes me as a highly competent prosecutor, said when in terms of classified, and you know this because you've dealt with this your whole legal career, he said it really, the, all the, the, the statutes that they included in, in, in the application for the search warrants, none of them depended on classification. And what Weissman said, it, it, it's less important that you stole government property. I, I mean, you don't own these papers. <laughs> they belong to right. the government. You know, and he right. said, and when you left the Watergate committee, you didn't take anything with you. It didn't belong to you. It belonged to the government. The, uh, the difference between uh, taking material that you shouldn't have, like the White House silverware, right. um, and taking information that potentially compromises the national security of the United States, I think is a distinction worth making. However, if you're just looking at what the law says, yeah, um, it's true. It doesn't matter if it's classified, it's not yours. And what's interesting right. about the search warrant is that any material that was uh, provided to the president, including memos and other things that may have involved 
the January 6th insurrection would be covered by the same subpoena that uh, compels the seizure of the classified documents as well. So we don't know what exactly uh, may have been comp- uh, comprised in the in the materials that have been taken, uh, but it uh, that uh, that uh, search warrant was broad enough uh, to cover uh, materials that would be involved in the January six plot. Yeah. Albert. Uh, Richard, uh, this is, of course, not Trump's only um, legal issue right now. <clears throat> the New York Attorney General is investigating. It's a civil action so far. That's where I believe he took the fifth, some 400 and some times. Uh, the Manhattan DA, uh, disappointingly, didn't keep the main prosecutors, but that's still an active case. And Fulton County, Georgia, uh, seems to be quite a serious investigation. <clears throat> you know how, the way these stack up. Would Garland want the uh, want the others to wait before he does something, or would uh, would it be better to have those go first and then justice if they decide to bring some action? I don't think uh, Merrick Garland controls um, the state prosecutors. Right. Um, New York doesn't appear like it is in the running at the moment for criminal charges to be brought. But uh, Georgia is certainly far along. And uh, those charges are somewhat different in character than uh, the central charge of uh, about January 6, although they are in some ways related. And uh, I think the uh, those charges can stand on their own. And if federal charges uh, proceed, um, there is a Uh, quite a variety of different charges um, being investigated and for which there appears to be uh, significant evidence based on the information uncovered by the January 6th committee. And as uh, Merrick Garland and his deputies move forward, and they are very capable investigators among them, um, I'm sure they are developing uh, further information and su- of a substantial nature. Yeah, Richard, you are, uh, you know, I've heard now from a number of, of the really prominent figures in 1973 and 74, Watergate, uh, say that, uh, say what you just said, that for all Richard's, all Richard Nixon's venality, <clears throat> this guy is much worse and much more dangerous. Uh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein have said that, John Dean, Bill Cohen. Uh, <clears throat> and I, I totally accept that. But you had tapes. You had tapes. Uh, that did make it easier, didn't it? Well, once we got the tapes, it made it a hell of a lot yeah. easier. There was absolutely no doubt of Nixon's involvement in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. This was a question of uh, not losing the case, not screwing it up somehow. But once we got the tapes, and certainly wasn't easy to get them, you may recall that uh, both the Senate and the House failed to get the tapes. And we provided that information to the House Impeachment Committee, 
as well as the information relating to Richard Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator as the grand jury voted, um, which then provided them with a pretty good foundation uh, to build the impeachment case, just as we received a good foundation from Sam Irvin's committee. Um, And so uh, when it came time to determine whether to indict a sitting president, we deferred on the basis of the fact that there was a viable constitutional alternative in the form of impeachment. There was an impeachment committee sitting, and it was a serious committee, and uh, we turned our evidence over to them. But we did not conclude that a sitting president couldn't be indicted under any circumstances. In fact, I think logic tells us that it would be absurd absurd to make such a conclusion. Um, What if the president of the United States, in a fit of pique, whacked his communications director in the head with a three iron and killed him right on the spot in front of the cameras? Do you expect that a president of the United States would not be prosecuted for murder uh, under those circumstances, a sitting president? But putting that aside, once it was citizen Nixon that we were dealing with, once Nixon had resigned and before President Ford pardoned him, we considered what we would do. And the course we considered taking was to indict Richard Nixon, private citizen. So in that sense, there is a parallel to what Merrick Garland is looking at. On the other hand, Richard Nixon, by reason of the fact that he had already been twice elected president, could not be elected a third time, whereas Trump is at this moment still a viable candidate under our Constitution. Richard, just quickly, and I'll turn it back to James. I'm sure you thought about this a lot. As you said, there was a compelling case of obstruction of justice even before you got the tapes. Do you think that Nixon would have been impeached and, and, <clears throat> and potentially indicted without the tapes? Uh, he might have been impeached. Uh, he would have been indicted because, oh, without the tapes. Without the tapes. Uh, I think it would have been, a, uh, I think he would not have been indicted. I think he would have um, been weakened by the testimony of Dean and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at that point, it was uh, the word of Dean and a few others, uh, like Magruder, who wasn't a very credible witness. Uh, against Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and uh, the uh, majority of White House loyalists uh, who were loyal still to Nixon. So I believe he would have survived and served out his term. In fact, I think if Nixon had destroyed the tapes uh, even after they were subpoenaed uh, by us, and even after Judge Sirica and the sec- and the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit had ruled that they'd be turned over, if he had destroyed them even then, 
I think he would have survived. Weakened, but he would have survived. Uh, and that, that had been suggested by the aforementioned Roy Cohn, uh, to bring it uh, full, full circle. James, back to you. All right, I have two, two questions. One, if, if we talk about the Fulton County DA. We talk about the search warrant. We talk about everything. We talk about Alvin Bragg. I was reading a couple of things that this Latita James thing, this civil thing, is nothing to sneeze at. That he's got, you know, that, and Wesselberg just said, well, they didn't get on a chronic hour on this. How much trouble, how, how big a deal is this civil lawsuit in, in New York State against the Trump organization? And is it underappreciated? It's a big deal in the sense of uh, Trump has very substantial business in New York State still, even though he has boogied down to uh, a more favorable political climb in Florida and given up his New York residency, he still has huge real estate interests in uh, in New York. And the interesting thing about asserting the Fifth Amendment privilege, James, is that under the law, a jury can consider the assertion of the Fifth Amendment privilege as evidence against a civil litigant, a civil defendant. Uh, so unlike in a criminal case where you cannot use the assertion of a Fifth Amendment privilege against a criminal defendant, it can and is used in civil proceedings as an inference that if truthful testimony were given, it would be adverse to the individual who is asserting the privilege. So, I, I got before I let you go. I got to ask this question. I'll put you on the spot. You're one of the most revered guys in American law. You've, you've seen a lot. You have a lot of wisdom. So, it's March of 2023, and the. White House counsel walks into President Trump's office and said, I have a back channel offer that Trump will ask you for a pardon. In, in the President Biden's office. In President Biden's office. Yeah, yeah. General yeah. counsel walks into President Biden's office. Uh, I have a back channel offer from Trump's lawyer. And it says that Trump will send you a letter asking you specifically for a pardon admitting guilt. And he would further ask you in, in the name of continuity and justice and peace in the country if you would call the Fulton County DA and ask her to suspend her investigation. Furthermore, Trump will pledge that he will never run for public office again. All right, you are behind the resolute desk. What do you tell your counsel? You know, James, you make a very interesting point as to why I've never run for public office. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't get, I don't get to struggle with questions like that. That is a political question entirely. And I think that the factors that go into answering that question depend on the severity of what the evidence shows that Trump did and whether uh, uh, an individual president can tolerate I can't let you go this easy. I'm sorry. I love you, man. 
But when four, you were the most involved person in a Nixon stuff, you'd accumulate the evidence. You were on the fucking committee. When Ford pardoned him, what was the emotion that you had? And when they called you, somebody called you and said, President's going to pardon Nixon, what did you feel? You, you can't get off this easy, dude. <laughs> no, no, I, I that's I not a hard question for me, James, because uh, as I said before, uh, you know, the, 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 the political question of pardoning Nixon uh, was entirely Ford's. It was his right to do it, and I right. didn't feel that he had abused that right. I didn't like right. the timing. I didn't okay. like the fact that he uh, gave him a pardon unconditionally without an apology and what without an admission of guilt. I thought that was not good. Right. But quite frankly, the existence of the tapes and the irrefutable evidence of Nixon's guilt really overcame any suggestion that uh, Nixon was un improperly hounded out of office. It was his own uh, supporters who eventually uh, broke the camel's back uh, and said, look, you've got to go. You're going to destroy the entire party. You'll take everybody down with you if you don't. And to Nixon's credit, look, whatever you want to say about Nixon, the man had a sense of shame. Can you say that about Trump? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> Richard, I would just add as one who, as a reporter who thought originally that Ford pardon was outrageous, I've changed my view on it. I think it was better for the country. And to go to James's question, if he got an admission of guilt uh, from Trump, I think, I think it'd be awfully hard to turn that down. And I think the country would accept it. But I want to say for this summer, if you want two great books to read, go back and look at Garrett Graff's Watergate History, starring Richard Benvenisti, among others. Uh, and then uh, read Thank You for Your Servitude, starting Mark Leibovich and a cast of, um, of <laughs> villains. I, Richard, I promise you, I could get a prayer and a motion. <laughs> I don't know if it'd be a very good one, but I would ask for something. I've never been bashful. They didn't even ask me anything. Hey, Richard, right, Richard, Richard, thank like you. and me, you're not going to get paid. Thank your IT. <laughs> right. We couldn't have done it without your IT. <laughs> okay, thanks for the IT department. Okay. Take care, man. Hey, James, in my many, many, many years in Washington, I've known great political reporters, great national security reporters, great investigative reporters, great economic supporters. The best reporter on the culture of Washington and the way some of these characters work is Mark Leibovich, first at The New York Times and now his uh, now at The Atlantic. His latest book, Thank You for Your Servitude, captures, I think, what's happened to the Republican Party these days. Mark, uh, we we just can't tell you how pleased we are to have you on the show. And uh, with apologies to the Bushes, I think the two dominant Republican figures of the last half century are Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. We thought it was the party of Reagan. Reagan never dominated the Republican Party the way Donald Trump does now, maybe more popular in the country. How did it happen? I mean, it happened because the Republican Party allowed itself to be pushed around and to just to surrender it. I mean, everyone see, this is why I wanted to do this book. Everyone focuses on Trump 
just the the pathology of Trump, the White House intrigue and stuff. And people focus on his voters. It's like, okay, what spell does he cast on the Republican grassroots? To me, I think the the more interesting story is the people who enabled him, the people like Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham and and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and, you know, go down the list. Rudy Giuliani. I mean, the, the people who allowed him to keep rehabilitating, keep um, you know, just just stay alive. And because they would never confront him and they never basically would grow a pair, they um, we, they have this situation now where I think Republicans still have a big Donald Trump problem. And, and I think it's sort of it, it's going to it's, it's the nation's problem. But I think ultimately it's something that is getting the party into just a lot of trouble over and over again in many election cycles. Mark, I will, we'll come back to uh, Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham. But I think I think two of those the most prominent figures who have, I think, inexplicably and wrongly eluded blame or responsibility for this. First, Mitch McConnell. Absolutely. Yeah, Tell I think McConnell, McConnell, first of all, he's a weasel. I mean, here, here's how he's a weasel. He made it known that he wanted Trump impeached the second time. OK, he said, oh, I want the Democrats basically to to take care of this son of a bitch for us. That was in Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns's book. Right. And he said, look, I would I would probably support an impeachment. He tried to get that train rolling. Then he said, by the way, I think Trump is is at fault here. But then he figured out a way that 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 Republicans didn't have to take that vote. They put the impeachment trial till after the inauguration. Every Republican had an easy out. They said, all right, well, he's a former president. We don't have to impeach the guy anymore. And then a few days later, uh, McConnell says, uh, yes, of course, I will support the nominee. And, and you know, then McCarthy goes down to Mar-a-Lago and away we go. And, and Trump is fully rehabilitated. And because of that, um, you know, Mitch McConnell now has a Herschel Walker problem and a J.D. Vance problem and a Dr. Oz problem and sort of go down the list. And he could have, you know, it, obviously to cut – Trump off at the knees would have had a pretty serious cost for McConnell. But I think ultimately that was what he wanted to do. That's what his instincts told him to do. And he could have just solved the problem right then. But because they just keep dragging it out and don't do anything about this, they still have this ongoing thing. Well, the other guy that fascinates me here is Mike Pence. He gets deserved credit for what he did on January 6th. Strikes me that was about the only time he showed any courage. Uh, that he was going in December and still talking about uh, a fraudulent election. Uh, and even now doesn't really, I mean, he, he subtly endorses one candidate versus another. I mean, Mike yeah. Pence really was not a profile in Courage during this time, was he, Mark? No, he did the bare minimum. Um, you know, I'm glad he did the bare minimum. It was a big day to do the bare right. minimum. It was. Um, you know, can't, can't underestimate that, can't understate that. But I think, yeah, I mean, and even now, like he should, he should have on day one said, I will go before the January 6th committee. He shouldn't be like, Futzing around trying to like get an invitation. Oh, I'm waiting for an invitation. I mean, you know, enough of this. Just like, look, you were there. Um, either sort of step out of this or or don't. But I mean, it, it's just not a very fun thing to watch. Sure is not, James. So, so Mark, you, you know how much I love you. You're probably the only guy I had at both my Tulane and my LSU class. <laughs> so I, I must think of something of you. But yeah. I, I have a, I have a okay. I got disagreement. Get him I have a disagreement with you and Al. Right. And I'll tell you what it is. That, of course, it's a giant fucking mess. That, that I know that. Who is responsible for it? I think the argument y'all make is more feckless, weak, spineless, go-along leaders. I say it's driven by dumbass voters who vote in Republican primary. That dumbass voters 
are going to produce dumbass people and spineless politicians. If Mitch McConnell would have pushed to convict Trump on that second impeachment, he would not have been majority leader the next day. These fucking people want to be lied to. Mm-hmm. And all that Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio and, 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 you know, John Kennedy and every pretzel politician, Dr. Oz, J.D. Vance, they doing that because their voters demand it. And this is really democracy at work. I would I would say I agree with you, but I also think that it's it's if you want to be a leader, lead. I mean, don't just sort of I mean, it's sort of the chicken egg thing, right? Do you give the voters what they want? Do you sort of try to reach down to their level of misinformation? Metrovich was given was right. is driven by Fox, by the way. I mean, that's right. I mean, Fox is a big piece of the equation here. That, <laughs> you know, you can't you can't underestimate. So, um, look, I mean, I, I think you could argue that someone like Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, I mean, they have run very, you know, they've, I think they've conducted themselves honorably. They have spoken the truth. I think that has, that has value, but ultimately they're going to lose their jobs. I mean, I don't know if Romney's going to lose his job or not, but he's certainly a pariah in in his caucus. So I don't know. I I think leadership helps. I think leadership matters. What they would say is, all right, man, just you and I, you know, because you talk in your book about, like interviews, they all come and they say privately, he's fucking crazy. And then they go out in public and they say something different. But what they would say to you again is, yeah, Liz Cheney got 35%. What good am I going to do going out there and doing what you and Al Hunt want me to do is stand up and be courageous and be Mac Mathias or Ed Brooke or Chuck Percy. I don't know who the fuck you're about. All right? Because I would have no chance. I would be slaughtered. You know, you could say that history will remember you well, and they would say, yeah, well, you know, a lot of good that did Jeff Flake, right? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I get it. I get the argument. I just, you know, I'm just stunned the degree to which people are, are terrified of losing elections. Um, you know, it's funny. You talk to people who lose elections. You talk to Liz Cheney. You talk to, um, you know, Tom Rice in South Carolina. Um, these people seem a lot freer, a lot more sort of at ease with themselves than you do when you talk to Kevin McCarthy or or even like a, you know, at least Ru- a I think Rubio is the biggest joke of them all. Oh, isn't he something? Yeah, no, he's. Tr- I mean, he's. Oh, he I could be in trouble too. By the way, he could be. I, I don't know. That race, I think, is is a bit of a, a dark horse as far as you know. It, it could be close. I, I, I do too. And I, it's always. I, I've never been one of these Florida gong people, but but be yeah. that as it may, you. This, what this has done. Is the best piece on all of this was done by this crazy uh, Republican. I, I think she's a, 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 a black woman who ran for in Pennsylvania in the primary. She was really far right, and she said, "You don't understand. Trump doesn't control this. MAGA was there long before Trump." And the point she makes that is 100% brilliant. If Trump deviates, he's done. Remember when he went to North Alabama and told him to get vaccinated? Yeah, that blew him right off the goddamn stage, Absolutely. right? If and, and if you're sitting there and you say, if you're a Republican and you say, yeah, look, I think vaccination makes sense. The death rate among non-vaccinated people is, I don't know, 16 higher, times higher than right. vaccinated people. If you say that, they're not going to follow you. No. And they'll, they'll, they'll up in you. You do not have any ideological or policy leeway. You go with them or they dump you, including yeah. Trump. It's true. I mean, Trump, look, Trump is there's no one more terrified of Trump's base than Trump himself. Right. I mean, he is. Yes. He, he can't lose these people. He absolutely. 
he he's terrified of them turning on him. So. He, he is scared of his base than the Democrats are. Yeah, it's a Absolutely. very good point, Lebo. A really yeah. good point. Albert, yes, Trump is the most afraid person of his base. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, James and I do have a disagreement on McConnell. I think McConnell could have gone along with the impeachment, uh, and I think he would have been— a, been, would have stayed as majority leader because most of those Republicans, it's what they wanted. They didn't want to have to vote for it, but he clearly could have gotten nine or ten votes. You can almost name the people he could have gotten. I, I think he made a huge miscalculation then. There would have been a lot of screaming and yelling, and we'd be about where we are today, except there wouldn't be Trump. But that's just that, you know, that's Well, well Trump view. would have left the party. No, Trump wouldn't have gone away. He would, right. have just, he would have just started his own party, and then the Republicans would be really fucked. I mean, I'm sure this is all part of their calculations. Yeah. So. Let me let me talk. Why did Kevin McCarthy talk to you so much? Because he's such a weakling? I don't know. They all did. I, I don't know. People have been asking that for years. Why do these people still talk to you? I mean, McCarthy kind of can't help himself. I mean, he's, you know, if you meet the guy, he's 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 kind of a schmoozer. He's pretty, he's not terribly uh, smart, I don't think. He, he just sort of likes to be liked. And right. he likes to sort of talk politics. He likes to talk sports. He likes to gossip. I mean, you know, I can always talk to a guy like that. So, I yeah. mean, I'm kind of. Am I, do- I mean, so there, there's something very familiar about him. I mean, he's obviously he lives in Bakersfield. He loves Bakersfield, but he's he's as much a creature of Washington as, as you're ever going to find. So I don't know. And then also you underestimate my my charm and irresistibility. That's like a that. very good point. I, I, I you're absolutely right about that. And I, me, right? I, I, I I apologize for that. No, no, it's all right. It's it all right. is extraordinary. It really is. I <laughs> often refer to you as the Redford of, uh, of our business. Absolutely. Uh, but um, yeah. but, you know, I mean, McCarthy, uh, I mean, you, you did a brilliant job. And he he asked you, I think, a couple of times, why do you keep asking me about that? What the hell do you think you were going to talk to him about, Mark? Right. I mean, it just shows he's not very bright, as you said. He, he's not. And, and also, I think, you know, as a journalist, you look for tells. You look for places where people are uncomfortable. And, you know, when I asked two questions about Donald Trump, who's still the most sort of, you know, I think consequential political figure, certainly in the Republican Party, and he, right. he just starts complaining. To me, that's uh, that's revealing. So I'm going to point that out. Lindsey Graham is almost a psychological study, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Shakespearean. Absolutely. Right. No, I mean, what's interesting about Lindsey Graham is, you know, like McCarthy's, he's very personable. I mean, he's easy right. to talk to. And I'm sure, you know, you've talked to him many times. I mean, he's uh, but he he needs the Senate seat. He there is the, one of his colleagues said to me, um, "There's no one in the Senate who needs the job more than Lindsey Graham does. He doesn't have anything else in his life. He doesn't have right. a doesn't have a family. Doesn't have a lot to go home to. Doesn't have any hobbies. He likes um, likes being here. Likes to be in the room. Loves the idea that the president gives him the time of day. He's in the golf photos with Trump. Um, it's obviously good for him politically in, in South Carolina. But you know, he as Lindsey says, um, this is the dice table." You know, I like being at the dice table. I get addicted to this. Um, I need to be there. And it's a kick. And McCain used to do the same thing for him. Um, And then, you know, he kind of would say that he traded up after McCain, you know, left and and he sort of swapped him out for Donald Trump. And, um, you know, it's a weird and depressing state of affairs. It really is. But he's he's, I don't know what you call him, father figures or something. But, uh, you know, now he doesn't doesn't have Trump really anymore. And poor John McCain, you know, is no longer with us. And by the way, Lindsey kind of sold him out after he died. Absolutely. Uh, uh, So who does Lindsey turn to now? Who's his daddy figure? I think still Trump. I mean, he he first of all, he gets a lot of mileage out of the fact that he's perceived to be Trump's BFF in the Senate. I mean, he's right. down there all the time. I mean, he's golfing at Mar-a-Lago or right. trying to golf 
at Mar-a-Lago all the time or, or down in Palm Beach. So, yeah, I mean, he, he's going to, I think, uh, maximize that meal ticket. He's also, he's a big-time freeloader. <laughs> There's a great passage in um, Stephanie Grisham's book. When you write when you write books like, like I did, the great thing is you write, you read books that no one else reads and you pick up the little nuggets. But Stephanie Grisham said that the, uh, the White House staff used to refer to Graham as Senator Freeloader, and he would always just be like sort of uh, showing up at Mar-a-Lago, showing up at the White House, like wanting some kind of free meal, just like lounging by the pool. And he just kept saying, um, you know, is this the life or what? So, um, yeah, don't underestimate just the, the appeal of freeloading when you're in politics. Mark, because not only do I lack your charm, but I also am not, I lack your reporting skills. So I made a, a, a pledge in January 17. I was never going to set foot in the, uh, in the Trump Hotel, uh, where mm. you spent a lot of time. Uh, uh, I mean, that, that really was a gathering place for a lot of these hangers-on and sycophants, wasn't it? it- it was, yeah. It was like the Cheers bars, like Cinderella's Castle. You'd see all these Republican, you know, congressmen there just after their Fox hits, you know, drinking a lot. And, you know, you could you get a lot of work done. I mean, this is not my favorite place to hang out, believe me. Um, and uh, but there was always a lot of reporters there. Trump himself would show up, you know, at least like 30 times. He'd probably there all the time. He, that was the one restaurant he would eat at outside of the restaurant, uh, outside of the White House. And uh, it'd be this quite this scene. He'd be he'd need the big uh, the big entrance and he'd get his 40 ounce steak and his shrimp cocktail and his French fries and his chocolate cake for dessert and a bucket of Diet Coke because he needed, you know, the diet is very important to him. Got to watch the waistline. Oh, yeah. James. Well, thank you. Uh, so, Mark, just make my point clear about Mitch McConnell. He might have been able to get 10 votes to convict. He would have been ousted as majority leader the next day. No way. Inst- instantaneously. Uh, no way. I don't know. I don't no know. Right. That's not okay. the way the inside Senate works. That's the way uh, right. the voters the ins- work. But inside the, the Senate, the vote, it's a different it, club. The, the voters have... I, y'all believe the senators Some of those have guys all may the have been power. I, 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 I'm, I'm going to make my point and move up. The voters are what's driving this in the Republican Party. It is stupid voters pushing around. The politicians don't drive it. That's just my point of view, but I, 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 I want to go to something else. I've got a few minutes left with you here. So, you, you know, you wrote a book, The Big Game, which I loved, in the NFL. Thanks. You know the NFL like crazy. Love and this fucking machine runs over everything in its way. Deshaun yeah. Watson, Danny Snyder, it does not matter. Right. It, it is the most powerful organization in the United States right now. It is impervious to anything. It and they're, just, they're gonna sign billions and billions of dollars. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's the biggest juggernaut in the country, entertainment juggernaut in the country. Right. And people, like, attack it. They hate it. They go at it every way, and they don't give a shit. They just, they, it's just a thing to watch. They just I mean, pile through everything. That's where there's overlap with Trump, you know. It's a reality show, right? I mean, right. you know, Roger Goodell is kind of like the Vince McMahon figure here. He's like, everyone loves to hate him, rich as hell, uh, you know, gets paid, what, $50, $60 million a year to do this. and. Right. People eat this stuff up. It's like it's like it's it's heroin. It's like, look, I I intuitively I mean, I reported for three years on the NFL. I know all the evil stuff they do with head injuries and I know all the existential issues. I can't stop watching this. I love my games. There's just a great way to spend a Sunday and they own a day of the week. So um, but in a way, you know, I think one of the reasons the NFL has always appealed to Trump is because he wants 
that Super Bowl. He wants because he considers himself to be the Super Bowl of politics. He considers elections to be a Super Bowl like spectacle. And there's nothing Donald Trump loves more than a spectacle or to be in the middle of the spectacle. And the NFL wanted no interest, had no interest in him for years. Um, but to me, there was a lot of overlap between, you know, my political life and my my football life, because it's sort of the same kind of thing. So, so before I, I, I let you go, i got to ask you this question. If we know Trump is Trumpism. We know the Trump people. We know the resentment they feel. I th- actually think a lot of it's more cultural and economic, but I'll, I'll, I'll let it go. How much do you think that coastal elites aggravate these people? And, oh, and, and, oh. and what, how, how much is actually NPR in everything it is to blame for this? Because they just come across as they're yeah. better and smarter than you are. And yeah. Like, oh. I, yeah, I don't I don't underestimate how much they hate us. And by us, I mean, media, corporate. Board. I mean, it's coastal. It's largely coastal in many it's cases. Um, not Gulf Coastal, but like, you no, know, no. Boston to Florida, you know, L.A. to Seattle. I mean. Uh, you know, maybe some college towns in between. But, you know, it's like ivory tower. It's corporate boards. It's, you know, it's media people. It's foundations. Foundations. So let, 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 let me give you an example, because you got one foot in, in, in the coast and one foot in the middle of the country. So yeah. you follow football. LSU plays Clemson in the Superdome. Right? Here we go. Here we go. It's January 13th. <laughs> All right. We'll and never get rid of this one. The, the, no, we're never going to get rid of it. Let's understand that. This will never, ever, ever, ever leave me because it's indicative of something much larger. A guy named Benjamin Applebaum, who is an economics editorial board member for the New York Times, sends out a tweet. The president of LSU correctly and sanely says, we're not going to have classes Tuesday because all of our students are 80 miles away and we don't want them driving back. And he says, well, is this a real school? Do, do they get student loan forgiveness? Now, in, in, in the problem with this guy is all of his fucking friends agree with him. Okay? Yeah. And then they wonder why, why they have this cultural resentment against them. I know. Well, you know, I had to leave the New York Times because of that tweet. I le- that was it for me. I'm right. leaving New York. I, I le- no, you're, look, you're, you're it, I mean, it, I don't. <laughs> it's not. It's not just him. No, it's I all the people at the coffee shop. Sure. All right. That agree with him. And then people sense this. And then people in Washington, oh, you James, you're just a one trick. Okay. I understand. Yeah. But it is indicative of something. No, I mean, look, I remember, um, what's that conservative's name? Um, Charles Murray, kind of controversial. Mm-hmm. He wrote the, what? Right, the Bell Curve. And- yeah, so he, I remember after Hillary lost, he said, uh, he talked to a bunch of Trump voters, and they said, well, you know, why'd you vote for him? Because a lot of them didn't like him. Like, they thought that, you know, they don't want to defend him. They don't admire him personally. Um, but what one of them said to him, and this always stuck with me, is, you know, Trump was our murder weapon. <laughs> you know, he didn't give a damn what he said about Hillary. He didn't give a damn what he said about Democrats. He didn't care what he said about Megyn Kelly, you know, whatever, whoever the villain of the day was. And a lot of it's politically quite incorrect. A lot of it's women and, and minorities. I mean, it was you go down the list. But, you know, uh, Charles Murray, he said, you know, don't ever underestimate the power of a murder weapon. And I remember Reince Priebus himself, the then the chairman of the RNC said, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, we know I, I haven't held a murder weapon in a while. And obviously, 
a murder weapon can have some sharp edges, right? And you got to handle with care. And when you're Reince Priebus, and you're going to get fired by tweet after six months on the tarmac. But um, yeah, no, I mean, Trump had that superpower. And I don't think it wore off for a long time. It might still have a little more to run. Yeah. All right, Robert. Well, everybody out there, it's called Thank You for Your Servitude, written by the great Mark Leibovich, uh, a man whose uh, intellect is surpassed only by his charm. So uh, oh. <laughs> so please, please get it. Thank you for your servitude. Mark, thank you for being with us. It's really a fabulous uh, show with thank you. you. Thanks for having me on, guys. Always a pleasure, and we'll do this again. Uh, we'll do it again. Man. And now for the questions that are they're, they're so good every week, James. It really is so hard to pick those that we do. But boy, we've got some awful smart, engaged listeners. Gary, and I think it's Placerville, California. Have you ever been to Placerville, California? If I do, I don't remember it, but I probably Yeah, have. I don't I remember it either. But yeah. Gary asked a good question. He said, I was reading parts of the Inflation Reduction Act, and I'm very surprised at the dates before these articles of this bill are to be implemented. They don't start negotiating with Big Pharma to reduce drug costs till 2026. Reducing prices for drugs like insulin doesn't take place till 2025. He asked, what the you-know-what? Well, what I mean, the complaint is, is that it takes a little while to be implemented. That we're talking about what a great deal it is, and nobody's going to feel it for after the 2024 election. I think that's an exaggeration. Uh, you won't feel it, but at least you know. It's the first time this has happened in how long? I mean, at least you right. know that they're doing something. I I, I don't know if it's going to be a, a a reward thing where people are going to still know. They're not going to see the, the prescription for the diabetes medicine, the blood pressure medicine, go down between 9 and 2022 election. But to the extent that they can read about it, they're aware of it. I mean, it's a good point, but... You know, you take what you get. We haven't had anything like this in God knows how long. Well, I would just tell you, we're, we're down in Riceville Beach, North Carolina, had dinner the other night with my dear college friend, Carlton Prickett, and his wife, Susan, uh, and they have a child with diabetes, and boy, are they excited about that insulin cap. Right, that's so, uh, They know it's coming, and I think I think it goes right to the, you know, to the point you're making. Right. Willis in, in St. Petersburg says it's widely predicted the Democrats will keep the Senate but lose the House in the midterms. Would it be possible for the current House to pass a bunch of Democratic agenda bills and send them to the Senate to pass after the election? A couple of points, Wells. First of all, it's no longer a foregone conclusion that the Democrats will lose the House. But secondly, uh, I, I think you've got an interesting idea, but I'm sorry, it's just not feasible. Uh, if they pass, there's going to be a lame duck session. They're going to do a bunch of things. They may do an election reform act. The Senate, I think, passed a number of judges. Uh, during that time. But it doesn't make any sense for the House to pass a bunch of those bills like child care and pre-K and other things and send it to the Senate because they passed the Inflation Reduction Act uh, through a process known as reconciliation with 50 votes. Those standalone bills would require 60 and they won't get any Republicans. I kind of agree with both of you. I mean, it's it's not going to happen, but to the extent that you can you know, show that this is what we're going to do. It probably has some help. I, I certainly, it's hard to disagree with the Democrats have a better chance of winning the Senate than keeping the House. But, you know, what usually happens is it, it, it it's, could be for bad, too. 
that these elections tend to break one way toward the end. And it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that the Democrats could keep the House. I I, I think it's a little bit harder if you look at where, where we are now approaching Labor Day that the Republicans win the Senate. I mean, it, it couldn't be going any worse for them in Pennsylvania. And, uh, but but it, you got to say that it, it's a possibility that they could, you know, they could win the Senate. But I, I think it's a—I think— at the end of the day, you know, I, I'll correct myself if I'm wrong, they probably are not going to be split between the House and the Senate. I think they're generally, they both go the same way. And if I, you, you were to pick one where they're going to go, it would be D? Yeah. Got to pick one. Got to pick one. I mean, you put I mean, I, of ben course, I, always, I, I generally am a homer. But I, I, I got to say, I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm certainly encouraged by what I'm seeing. I, yeah. I'd say that, and it's really amazing. But but how do I know? If, you know, some people think the gas prices are going to go up, and uh, it's just too many unknowns. But I, I, I'm, yeah. I certainly have, am more optimistic than I ever thought I'd be. Well, <clears throat> New York 19 certainly helped that optimism. Now we get we're getting some. You know, last couple of weeks we haven't had our global. Uh, uh, listeners writing as much, but Larry in Paris, France. All right, I know where that is. I'm getting ready to go. He said it is clear that Michael Fra- Michael Franken in Iowa is an underdog, but I immediately sent him an Act Blue donation after watching incumbent Senator Chuck Grassley's outrageous lies about the IRS. Uh, I remember people in Iowa being honest and straightforward. I think Larry is asking you, James, does Michael Franken have a shot? You know, I, I, I guess I'm... I'm torn to say, which is, man, it's Iowa. It's really gone the wrong way. It was a massive disappointment in 2020. I said, I'll give you an honest, deep, thought out, profound answer. He has a shot. He has a shot. Yeah. And the reason above all is I think the country is getting ready to have a generational uprising like you've never seen. Chuck Grassley was elected the first time to public office in the 1950s. I think we're eight decades later. And Franken is a way, way, way better than normal candidate. And I, 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 I think you made a smart donation. There. I really do. Two points. Chuck Grassley would be 95 uh, at the end of his second term. 95. Just think about that yeah. for a minute. The second thing is, um, you know, he, you know, he is absolutely, Larry, you're absolutely right about Grassley lying about the IRS. This has become a Republican lie. This bill they just passed gives a lot of money to the Internal Revenue Service, and it will serve two functions. Number one, it'll make, it'll, it'll, it'll eliminate a lot of the bureaucracy and make filing a lot easier for most Americans. And number two, it'll go after some really high-rolling tax cheats, both on the individual business side. It ain't going to go after the farmer, the small businessman, uh, the person making 50 grand a year. That is a lie. The Republicans know it's a lie. Uh, and the IRS, is, has, they've got antiquated uh, technology. Uh, this is a good move. It's going to make for an efficient tax system because you know something? If those tax cheats are forced to pay their money, it means either the deficit is smaller or, or you and I have to pay less. So, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think Grassley is... He don't know whether to whine his ass or scratch his watch. I mean, he's, why don't you just retire, dude? <laughs> well, they also have been talking out there about how old Joe Biden is. Well, Chuck Grassley's 10 years older. 
Uh, Jeff in St. Pete Beach, Florida, we all know where that is, says, do you guys think Liz Cheney making a third-party run for president helps or hurts, hurts Donnie? Jeff, you like, just slow up. Don't get ahead of yourself. Liz Cheney is doing a great public service now in trying to tell people what an absolute con fraud man, uh, con and fraud, uh, Donald Trump is with a contempt for the rule of law. You know, I heard someone the other day, you know, will she get into the bait stage? We don't know where we're going to be a year from now. We don't know what Trump's criminal uh, records will be at that point or indictment at that point. We don't know what his health will be. I think what Liz Cheney is doing right now is very, very beneficial. Uh, and a year or so from now, we can worry about these other issues. Yeah, there's so much between now and in the next year. We can't imagine. And that's a very wise observation. Let, let, let's just sit back and let the ball come to us. Yeah. James, John in Sonoma, California. I think John is a repeat questioner, but he always asks good ones, so we're going to keep, keep repeating. This Sonoma is going to yeah. a beautiful part of the world. He says, as you note, the primaries are dominated by extremists, especially on the right, but on the left, too. So how do you reform the primaries? Democracy is at stake. Fascists on the right, woke fools on the left. What do we do? I'm not sure the left is doing all that well in Democratic primaries. They didn't do very well in in, in New York. They certainly didn't do very well in Cleveland. Uh, I I mean, they have a a pretty sorry record, I guess you can say. Ilian Omar won by, you know, a couple of three points in the primary in Minneapolis, but doesn't reflect much. I mean, once they get out of their core urban environment, they don't do anything. They just don't win elections. And they keep insisting yeah. that they will, but they never do. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Uh, this, this really is a sequel to that. Bill in Chicago says, efforts, writes, efforts to reduce gerrymandering as a means of decreasing partisan politics have largely failed. While attempts to more broadly implement ranked choice voting, where you indicate who your second and third choice uh, might be, could meet a similar fate. Should this be the next grassroots effort to help reduce the partisanship undermining our democracy? You know, I I still haven't spent enough time looking at ranked choice voting. I must say I, I am interested in it. I'm a bit intrigued by it. Uh, I think what it does is it basically goes and it, it, in, in the main, it, uh, it will be harmful for those people on the extremes, uh, whether it's the left or the right. Uh, and I think in the places where I've seen it work, uh, congressional race up in Maine, uh, the recent uh, Alaska Senate race, maybe the House race out there, uh, I, I'm, I'm attracted to the idea of ranked choice voting. How about you, James? You know, they mock that, which they don't understand. So I'm not going to mock it because I mean, now this is maybe Sarah Palin. I guess my objection to it is, you know, we have a foot race. Everybody lines up, gun goes off, first guy crosses the tape at 100, wins the race, the first person, I should say. I mean, what's wrong with the person with the most votes winning? I mean, it it doesn't work out the way we want to. And, and on the, the gerrymandering stuff, I think it would be great. The Supreme Court has basically scoffed at the idea of the 15th Amendment, has scoffed at the idea that, you know, every vote, you know, there should be some sort of sense of equality in, in this country. I, I, I think it's horrible. And, you know, it's just led to, well, you do this to us, we do this to you. And there are plenty of ways that you can 
apportion legislators, legislatures that give you some sense of fairness. It's not that hard. No one wants to do it. But I can't embrace a voting system that I don't totally understand. And I don't know what was wrong with the old, the person with the most votes wins the election idea. But I could, I, I'm probably missing a big point. I, I, I don't want to pretend that I know a whole lot more about it either. I'm intrigued by it, and uh, maybe we both ought to look at it a little bit more. Because uh, and see, uh, Sam, in a place you've heard of called New Orleans, Louisiana, <clears throat> asked, does Stacy does Stacey Abrams have a real chance? It seems like she's running a quiet and low-profile campaign, at least compared to the Senator Warnock versus Herschel Walker. Would love to hear more about that race and what are her prospects. Well, first of all, she's not running that low. I mean, she she's out there. She's came yeah. out for for like sports gambling and stuff in Georgia, and she's come out with a with a, with a you know public safety plan. Uh, and she is definitely uh, I, obviously I talk to people in Georgia every day. Uh, have access to really good polling, and I mean, it's she's in a tight race. And you know, sometimes you win tight races, sometimes you don't. But there's no reason to like give up on her at all. And and she's starting to run a really aggressive campaign. I don't know how much it matters. Their lieutenant governor candidate who doesn't like the governor candidate was involved in some of this fake elective stuff. Uh, we got a really good lieutenant governor candidate in Charlie Bailey. We, Warnock is a, you know, the Warnock, uh, Herschel Walker pair off could not be better for Democrats. Uh, so I'm not, I, I don't think Stacey's any worse than 50-50. I mean, and probably not any better, but no worse. Yeah, yeah. Well, at this stage, you know, you'd take that. James, our final question, and, and you're going to have to answer, I have no idea what this is about. It's from Gordon in Norwood, Michigan. Uh, no, I take that back. Uh, uh, Gordon asked a different question, but I, since I mentioned him, I have, let me answer that because I have a final question for you, which you're going to like. Uh, why do we devalue those among us, including Joe Biden's skill in the art of being elected and exercising power effectively? Gordon, that's a good question. And you're right. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, we ought to remember Joe Biden, for all the problems they've had this year, really did a pretty darn good job and ended up having a pretty darn good year. And he has, I think, been too unfairly maligned. I think James agrees. I, I agree. And I think Joe Manchin has been too unfairly maligned. All right. I I I think what what they ended up was you know a, a hardly in the sort of idea that we were going to go to primary him and you know he kind of told us what, what he thought of Christian cinema also I, I I agree I think I think President Biden had much better terms so far than anybody could have anticipated and I think all of the trashing of Joe Manchin was premature. Yeah, well, it was a, it's, it's a very impressive record. It really is. James, that question, that final question, is from John in Chicago. All right. I would like to hear Mr. Carville comment on the Louisiana State University campus mounds that were recently determined to be the oldest man-made structure in North America. I have not no idea what he's so talking about, James. On the LSU campus, there's something they call an Indian mound. It's, it's really it's kind of in the middle of the campus. And there's always been this kind of debate when I was going there, what do you do with them? And so they took these coarse samples and everything, 
and they determine it's like 11,000 years old, and they think it is the oldest existing man-made structure on the North American continent. And wow. people used to go on top of them and, you know, have blankets and, you know, picnics or make out or whatever college kids do. So, so the Indian mounds are like, uh, according to carbon dating or whatever, they're like 11,000 years old. And it, it's always been an environmental thing on campus. And now they don't allow you. So when I was there, you could go on the top and have a picnic or make out with your girlfriend or whatever you did. Uh, they, they've sealed them off. And they're literally, I don't know, a, a block and a half from the football stadium. So it's right in the middle of the campus. And it, it is interesting. And my kids and family have been sending the funniest guy hit on this story because I've been getting a lot of texts from people about that. But it is thought to be the oldest man-made structure on the North American continent right now. Well, okay, we know about the LSU mounds now. James, I'll just close. This is not a question, but on a positive note, North Carolina's crazy right-wing uh, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson has now backed away, apparently, from his call to eliminate the teaching. Listen to this. Eliminate the teaching uh, in, in, in public schools of science and history uh, for young. So he's, he's, he's not sure he's for that anymore. Well, it's good. So I guess that's, 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 that's progress, Mark Robinson, that, right? Yeah, that, that's, that, that's real progress. You know, we don't need none of that science <laughs> and history stuff. Yeah, it's kind of right. funny. I was talking to the Kansas Democrats. And they say, you know, we shouldn't teach children about slavery or the Holocaust because it'll make them uncomfortable. And I'm like, there's something to be uncomfortable about. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean why, my God. Right. We, okay, yes. And if that upsets you, well, great. It's something to be upset about. It was a really right. <laughs> hard thing. So, yes, and, and we should teach science. And, you know, if you you stick your hand in scalding boiling water, you're going you're gonna to hurt yourself. I mean, Jesus. God. These people are just in a, in a stupid contest. Absolutely. All, All right. right, keep those emails and letters coming in there because we just love our listeners out there and we love the good questions you ask. And if uh, you didn't get a satisfactory answer, come back at us, okay? Thank you. Hey, James, I promise you, this is my last outrage about Liz Cheney's critics. I promise. But now <laughs> it's coming from the left. Uh, people like, uh, you know, one of your least favorite Democrats, Nina Turner, uh, who may set a record for lopsided losses in Democratic primaries right. this year. She calls Cheney a right wing fascist and says everyone who's praising her uh, ought to be ought to, ought to be sanctioned. They're wrong. Uh, other lefties say she's bad on taxes. Liz, she's bad on abortion. She's bad on guns. She is, from that perspective. Cheney has never claimed to be anything but a down-the-line conservative. Her objection to Trump has nothing to do with his policies on those issues. It has to do with his contempt for the rule of law, the threat his authoritarian beliefs and character are for our democracy, and his total uh, lack of integrity. Now, I too disagree with Liz Cheney on taxes, abortion, and guns, but the dangers posed by Trump are far more important, graver. It's about what sort of country our kids and our grandkids are going to live in. So Nina Turner, I don't expect you even to be a broken clock who's right twice a day. Uh, I am very glad Liz Cheney's doing what she's doing. James. Yeah, it, it, that's just, it, this is our performance art. Pay attention to me. 
I've lost two races. I got humiliated. Look, watch me. Look, look, look. I, it, that 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 goes on all the time. I, I guess you know. It, it, I don't know so much outrage as is observation. How in the world? In who thought that John Solomon releasing that letter? From the National Archives <laughs> would be a good idea. I mean, I, you somebody think a mole, had James? to like. He could be a mole. <laughs> I, I I don't know. It was like when somebody actually saw this before they they put it out. It's like the Doctor Oz in a crudite thing. Somebody couldn't say, "Wait, I don't think this is a great idea." You Wegners. I, I I just it's like stunning to me the. I, 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 maybe they just that stupid and crazy. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm at loss for an explanation. Well, it, James, and, uh, I, John Solomon may be the Rudy Giuliani of journalists. One time he was semi-respectable. I don't want to exaggerate that. Uh, and now he's gone the same way uh, that Rudy has gone. But, but all right, for whatever you think of him, he's a guy that's able to string two sentences together. He's a guy at certain parts in his life has shown some proclivity for coherent thought. What in the world went through his mind? And I'm sure Trump told him to do it. And then these lawyers, I'm going to ask Richard about this when he's on the show. The judge who was appointed by Trump had to say, look, if you go on the website, will show you how to make this pleading. They didn't right. even have a, what, what they call a law of prayer, where you, where, uh, something you ask for. The most basic thing that you do in any pleading is you ask to go. They, I, don't, they, I mean, maybe the answer to all of this is they're just fucking stupid. It's Up what happens when line. you get in Trump land. I mean, Rudy also, at one point in his life, was able to put together coherent sentences and have thoughtful observations yes. of sorts. Uh, it's what happens when you get in Trump land. And yes. I don't think John Solomon ever was, you know, ever achieved the heights that Rudy achieved at one point. But boy, they, I, they, they have achieved the depths together. But, but, he, but he's a guy, okay, for whatever you might say about him, he's a guy that at some point in his life, you know, Wrote a column, wrote the news stories. Right, I mean, right. they, 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 whatever. He's something. He's not illiterate. No, and Rudy and Rudy prosecuted and represented cases with with with, right. with some skill. And now he's doing insane stuff. It's when you get around Trump, Gresham's law takes effect. You, it's he, just, he it's just it, everything. It's stunning. It is. It you is. can see, like Sarah Palin, all right, who's just like born stupid. Right. right. You, I mean, you can see Louis Gohmert, who's just born stupid. I mean, but these people were not born stupid. They they affirmatively chose stupidity. Right. Well, again, it's the Trump effect. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions to us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Real Paper and Chili Sleep, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, you make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 
please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning. 